It's Friday, March 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Secret Service has released a new report on the growing terrorism threat of incels. These are men that call themselves involuntary celibates or anti-feminists. The report looked into incidents of violence linked to this type of extremism, including a series of red flags before a man opened fire inside hot yoga Tallahassee, killing two and injuring four in 2018. Nicole Skanga, Homeland Security reporter at CBS News, joins us for the findings of the report. Next, the surging prices of used cars are turning them into profitable investments for those willing to part with them. Used car prices have surged 41% since last year, and some are finding that they can make money on what was once a rapidly depreciating asset. Claire Ballantyne, personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for used car flipping and what to watch out for, taxes. Finally, most of the world has rallied behind Ukraine in the struggle to fight off the Russian invasion. Ukrainian President Zelensky announced the creation of the International Legion of Territorial Defense for foreigners looking to support them, and we have seen some Americans and veterans answer the call to serve. Jeff Shogel, senior Pentagon reporter at Task and Purpose, joined us for how some vets are in search of a just war. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So what NTAC did is it looked at this specific incident, but it also tried to extrapolate on, you know, the incel movement writ large and what can be done to prevent attacks like this from happening in the future. Joining us now is Nicole Skanga, Homeland Security reporter at CBS News. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Well, on Tuesday, we got a report, a 26-page report from the Secret Service, the Secret Service's National Threat Assessment Center. They took a deep dive into looking at a specific case of shooting at a yoga studio in Tallahassee, Florida, but more specifically, uh, the growing terrorism threat from men who call themselves incels. So these are the involuntary celibates or anti-feminists, things like that. And it basically just looking at a bunch of red flags and just saying, you know, that these people are still out there. And, and as I mentioned, they looked at a, a few different examples to kind of explore all of this. So, Nicole, help us walk through some of this. What did we see in this report? Since 2014, attacks inspired by the incel movement, which is sometimes called the anti-feminist movement, and spanning the U.S. and Canada have actually left dozens dead. And what the U.S. Secret Service's National Threat Assessment did was, as you mentioned, it took this deep dive into a series of red flags, warning signs predating a shooting at a yoga studio in Tallahassee, Florida, to figure out how can interventions save lives in the future. Now, NTAC within Secret Service the National Threat Assessment Center, and they routinely publish research based on the assessment of the current threat environment. And so in this 26-page report, they basically found that early intervention and behavioral threat assessments could be the difference between life and death for women who are increasingly targeted by this growing ideology. And, you know, the report concluded that while there's no one profile of an individual who plans or executes an attack of targeted violence, investigators really have to consider potential targets when they're trying to put a stop to these attacks. Suspects routinely explore multiple targets during their planning process before making their final selection. And so in the case of this 40-year-old gunman, Scott Paul Bierley, there were countless warning signs. The man who opened fire on hot yoga Tallahassee, killing two women, injuring four before he himself committed suicide, 
He'd previously been fired from multiple teaching jobs. He'd been banished from bars, apartment buildings. He even once authored a 70,000-word revenge fantasy about a boy-turned-serial killer. And so there was a lot there there. So what NTAC did is it looked at this specific incident, but it also tried to extrapolate on, you know, the incel movement writ large and what can be done to prevent attacks like this from happening in the future. And you mentioned 2014. I, I, you know, I think that's one of the cases I remember most. That was in uh, Isla Vista. This was a 22-year-old Elliot Roger who killed six people and injured 14 others. You know, he made a video. I think he went like uh, live on social media right before he did it. And same thing. A lot of the stuff talking about how he wasn't able to find a girlfriend, uh, you know, the the Chad and the Stacys. There's so much uh, jargon associated with this yeah. incel movement that was very interesting. And, and at that time, it's like, wow, how could a guy do something like that? And as you mentioned, since then, we've seen other cases of, of similar type things. And not only have we seen other cases of similar calls to violence, we've also seen very specific references to the Isla Vista killings that occurred in massacres after that. So, for instance, in 2018, you might recall there was a van attack in Toronto. It left 10 people dead, 16 injured. It was the deadliest incident linked to the incel movement that we know of. And witnesses saw a 28-year-old plow into pedestrians. He targeted individuals that were 22 to 94 years old. Minutes after posting on Facebook that the incel rebellion has begun. And the attacker actually had a history of praising the suspect, the shooter in the Isla Vista killings, Elliot Roger, online. And so oftentimes we do see individuals who are called to violence seeking inspiration from one another. And that's part of the reason why we have to be careful about how we talk about this movement, but also why it is so dangerous. It lives online. That means that it is more challenging oftentimes for law enforcement to be able to connect the dots here, which is why, you know, in its report, the Secret Service talks a lot about these behavioral threat assessments. And they're just fancy words for basically relying on the public to bring to light some concerning interactions with individuals, some possible behavior that is deemed suspect so that they can prevent things from really escalating to this level of violence. In the first Example, we were talking about the hot yoga Tallahassee situation. The man said, if I can't find one decent female to live with, I will find many indecent females to die with. Uh, you know, right there, that, that sounds like a call for violence. And so these are the, those red flags that you got to keep aware of. He had this really long, deranged history. His roommates called him Ted Bundy, a notorious serial killer. You know, he was referred to as, quote unquote, Nazi on social media. His parents, you know, reported to law enforcement later as sleeping with their door locked, right, and had already brought their son's troubling behavior to the attention of law enforcement prior to this attack. So even in this case, when there were opportunities to sort of intervene, you know, we are left wondering, why did we let it get here, right? And so now, you know, I think Secret Service is sort of redoubling its efforts to talk more about the success program since, for example, North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, Pinellas County, Florida, have created these behavioral threat assessment programs that are designed to detect and report early signs of potentially dangerous situations to prevent violence. But they're also found on college campuses. They're also found oftentimes even within high schools, community centers, 
you know, at the state level. And so even just having an awareness that these programs exist in certain communities is so important. So we can bring, if you see something, say something kind of to the next level here. Nicole Skanga, Homeland Security reporter at CBS News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Some people who have cars are realizing, hey, maybe I can go without it. You know, maybe they're working from home more now. Maybe there's good public transportation where they live. And they're deciding, hey, why don't I cash in on the market while I can and make some money off my car? Joining us now is Claire Ballantyne, personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Claire. Thanks for having me. Well, we have been seeing the big hit that the new car market has taken right now, uh, supply chain issues, semiconductor chip shortages, just a surge in demand over the pandemic. And it's just made it really hard to get a new car. Got to wait months, you got to wait a year or more, something like that sometimes. And then just the availability. So a lot of people right now are turning to the used car market and people are finding out that their used car is in some cases worth more than they paid for it, you know, a few years later. So people are trying to make some some cash and, and really sell those out. So Claire, tell us a little bit more about it. So it's an incredibly interesting dynamic that's going on here uh, because like you said, the prices of new cars are rising so much and it's hard to get them. There's so many delays with supply chain issues. Therefore, people are turning to the used car markets and pushing up prices there. So what we found is that some people who have cars are realizing, hey, maybe I can go without it. You know, maybe they're working from home more now. Maybe there's good public transportation where they live. And they're deciding, hey, why don't I cash in on the market while I can and make some money off my car? And, you know, for anybody that has bought a car, you know right away, as soon as you buy it and drive it off the lot, it depreciates immediately. It's immediately worth less than what you paid for it. And so that's not the case right now. There's uh, people, like you said, they're doing car flipping. They're identifying, hey, my car's worth a little more. You know, maybe I have a second car. Maybe I can just do without my current car. Let's do it. Let's sell it. So give us a couple of examples because you spoke to a number of people that were going through this process. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting is that these people, they are flipping their cars in the sense that they're selling and making a profit, but they aren't actually doing anything to fix up the cars. They're just realizing, hey, I have this car and I can sell it and make money. And so one person I talked to, you know, was based in Arlington, Virginia, had been using his car to get to work, but then all of a sudden we're all working from home. And so he realized that he didn't really need it that much anymore. He could sell it and put the money into uh, stocks on Robinhood. And then there's another person who, you know, essentially realized that he and his wife could get by with one car instead of two, also working from home more. So it's sort of this lifestyle shift as well with the pandemic. People, you know, not having to commute into the office via car as much. That's also contributing to it. So this is not just happening in the United States. Uh, You made mention that the UK and France are also going through this crazy time with used cars. And they're also getting into this practice of identifying which cars can make a profit and selling them too. Yeah, it's everywhere. I mean, it's the whole issue is the supply chain shortages right now, and that's a global issue. So it's affecting everything. And the other contributing factor is that it's becoming more expensive to own a car just because gas prices are rising everywhere. So people are really having to consider, 
with their transportation now and the cost of that relative to other methods of transportation. You mentioned the article, too, that it seems like secondhand car prices could be reaching a peak, if you can explain that a little bit. And you also have to uh, be wary because if you do sell your car, you're going to be on the hook for the taxes. So that's another thing to, to keep in mind. Yeah. So in terms of reaching a peak, some people are pointing to signals that prices can only go up so much. That's definitely something that's very hard to predict. And, you know, we'll see that play out the rest of the year, especially considering the inflation picture and how that is both so closely watched and also, you know, having the Fed hiking rates. So lots of moving factors in this. And so we'll see how it plays out the rest of the year. But yeah, for people who are doing this, the tax consideration is something to think about because cars are considered capital assets. And so they're taxed as you would a a stocks or mutual funds. So the biggest takeaway from experts is, you know, make sure that you're not selling your car before you've held it longer than a year or else you're facing short-term capital gains taxes versus long-term capital gains taxes. And those long-term capital gains taxes are, are more favorable to you. Claire Ballantyne, personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. A common theme I've heard from veterans is finally, finally, a just war, a conflict in which the difference between good and evil and right and wrong is clearly spelled out. Joining us now is Jeff Shogel, senior Pentagon reporter at Task and Purpose. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Thank you. Well, I wanted to talk about uh, a little bit more about what's going on in Ukraine with the Russian invasion. You know, one of the amazing things that we've seen is how the Ukrainian people have banded together really in the face of this opposition that they're facing from Putin and Russia. And man, have they been holding them back as best as they can. And we've seen the residents, the non-military people, you know, making Molotov cocktails, just standing up as best they can. And really the world too, right? Everybody else, the West, the United States and the West, really trying to support them as much as we can. An interesting thing that happened, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, just announced the creation of the International Legion of Territorial Defense. So this would be a force, fighting force, possibly of foreigners with military experience. And we're hearing that a lot of Americans want to either join this or maybe not this specific thing, but just in general, help out these people of Ukraine. So, Jeff, tell us a little bit more about how we're seeing veterans answering this call. Well, the veterans I've spoken to see this really in terms of good versus evil and also as an opportunity to fulfill their commitment to defend people and protect them from harm, especially when democracy is threatened. I spoke to one army veteran who had served in Afghanistan who managed to get to Ukraine where he's where he's trying to join the International Legion. Their base actually came under cruise missile attack on Sunday morning. And he said of the 23 international volunteers that were with him, only seven decided to continue fighting. And he's uh, still trying to sign an enlistment contract with the Ukrainians in the hopes that gives him some type of Geneva Convention protection. The other veterans I've spoken to are getting closer to Poland, where they are helping refugees. A couple want to go from Poland inside Ukraine and help Ukrainians. 
But many of them who I've spoken with want to do different kinds of support, such as provide medical support or or help refugees, rather than fighting directly with Ukrainians. I'm getting text messages from a veteran now who's in Poland at the border, and he, he posted on Facebook, he was really taken aback and hit emotionally by the scene of so many women and children crossing the border without any men, because they had stayed behind to fight. And for this international legion, uh, what they're calling for, at least for uh, what they need a lot of help with is in, in the medical side of things. You know, maybe they, they'll they need help with fighting too, but uh, at least for now, it seems like that's the chief call among the people that are, are coming along. They need help with medics and uh, when people are getting injured, it seems like. One of the people I spoke with said that he looked at the profiles of people who were applying for the legion. They had posted on Reddit, and a lot of them don't have military experience. So while they need people who have medical training and who have served in the military before, that may not be who they're getting. In fact, the veteran I spoke with who made it to Ukraine said that there were some people there who clearly should not have come, including people who had uh, alcohol issues. U.S. government officials are telling veterans and other Americans not to travel to Ukraine because it's too dangerous. President Biden has obviously said we're not committing any troops to any of this for fears of risk of a, of a larger conflict. So how does this work with veterans, people that aren't currently enlisted in the military anymore, you know, at least with on the U.S. side of things? Well, that's a very good question, because I haven't heard from the Justice Department on any legal ramifications that Americans could face if they go to Ukraine, especially if they fight in a foreign army. The Pentagon, the State Department have all said that if Americans want to help Ukraine, the best thing they can do is to donate to an international aid group that helps Ukrainians on the ground, like the Red Cross. And officials have urged them not to actually go to Ukraine because, quite frankly, it's very dangerous. It's interesting. After the first story ran, I received a phone call from a gentleman who introduced himself as a Vietnam veteran. And he said there was a time when he had inquired about going to Rhodesia, which was a a non-state set up on the apartheid model in Africa. And he had inquired about becoming a member of their military. And right afterwards, two FBI agents showed up at his door and told him that if he actually went to Rhodesia, they would revoke his citizenship. So far, I have not heard anyone from the Justice Department say that. In fact, it is interesting that the Justice Department has been so quiet on this issue. The veterans you spoke to and everything really say they want to be on the right side of a just war, right? They're seeing, as you mentioned, this good versus evil Russia targeting civilians, things like that. And and they're compelled to want to help. You know, just a lot of them, though, you know, saying they don't want to be a resource drain. They want to be an asset there. You know, so they're even between themselves and their circles, they're urging some caution of don't self-deploy. Don't just get out there. You know, make sure you're situated with the proper group to be effective, to help out. A common theme I've heard from veterans is finally, finally a just war. A conflict in which the difference between good and evil and right and wrong is clearly spelled out. And now this is an opportunity for them to do what they enlisted to do in the first place. Jeff Shogel, senior Pentagon reporter at Task and Purpose. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. A pleasure. 
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.